we need to hire black journalists and you know do this but it's not just about hiring black journalists you have to make sure you retain them promote them um and then make sure that they feel like they are wanted actually at your organization you're listening to well-being creative a podcast that breaks down the stigmas and creates the conversations surrounding well-being in the creative fields My name is Harrison Diskin, and I'll be sitting down with creators of all types to discuss how they manage the inevitable stress, anxiety, and health choices that come along with creating in today's wild world. Hey, it's Harrison. My guest today is journalist and author Phil Lewis. Growing up in Detroit and working his way through the educational and journalism fields, Phil is currently the front page editor for the Huffington Post. His finger seems to always be on the pulse as he reports in real time through these crazy moments. His Twitter is one of my favorites to follow as his tweets blend my love for current events and history with comedy and sarcasm. I'm excited to take some time to talk with Phil about what goes into being a journalist in 2020. And with that, I welcome Phil Lewis to Wellbeing Creative. Hey, Phil, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, Let's jump right into it. So you grew up in Detroit. I'm currently talking right here from downtown Detroit. Um, I was was about to ask where you you at, like where you uh, were you based? Yeah, I'm here in downtown Detroit at the old Millinder Center, um, okay. my apartment here. Um, but it's a great view. Today, we got a lot of snow, so it's pretty cool out here. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, great, great. Uh, can, can you tell us like uh, what life was like growing up in the city and what school was like for you? Yeah, let's see. So I, I had pretty much, I guess, one would say a sort of traditional um, VPS sort of track, I guess. I started off at Bates Academy. Uh, and then went on to Renaissance High School and then um, Michigan State. So sort of like the uh, the trajectory of of a just, you know, DPS, DPS kid. Uh, high school was honestly sort of a blur. Um, I was not super interested in high school <laughs> in school. Um, and so my grades didn't quite reflect uh, what <laughs> I think. Mm-hmm. Now. But um, I, I, I tightened it up a little bit uh, once I got once I started seeing a lot of my friends started getting, getting accepted into colleges and universities, I was like, oh, no, I don't, I don't want to be left behind. Uh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be stuck, uh, stuck in the city. Because at the time, um, you know, I, I think I was pushed and, and I think a lot of my peers were pushed to, you know, get out of Detroit as soon as <laughs> they could. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I was growing up by teachers. I, was, I remember growing up and hearing teachers say, you know, um, there's more for you all out here. There's more to do than for you to stay in the city, hmm. uh, which is really interesting because now, um, you know, as I grew older and I think as a lot of my like peers grew older, we I mean, we are just enamored by the city. Like we love the city, you know, mm-hmm. and everything that we do, uh, even for those of us who have left, um, we try to make sure that people know where we're from. Right. And so, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we, we, we love Detroit. I love Detroit. Uh, it, you say you, um, you, you <laughs> see my Twitter. And so, you know, I'll, I'm always, yeah. Um, yeah, one would never even know you weren't here. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah. I'm always posting about Detroit. I love keeping up with the news there. So, yeah. I so when it. you, when you left Detroit to attend MSU, was there like a big juxtaposition from living in the city to being in East Lansing? Man, so that was a huge culture shock. Honestly, that was, so that was the most white people I've ever been around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Michigan State. Yeah. Um, and so, it, I mean, it was it was a huge culture shock, man. It was, um, you know, going from DPS 
the level of, uh, I mean, just, it was just so different, right? Um, but I, I loved my experience at State. I love Michigan State. I had a great time there. I, I, it was, college is sort of a time where you really get to um, experience new things, try all sorts of different things that I, I feel like I never would have been able to experience, you know, had I stayed in, Mich stayed in Detroit. Um, so it was, it was nice to just kind of get out uh, outside of my comfort zone and try all sorts of different things, experience new, uh, new people and cultures and things like that. Was there ever a time where you felt like you were in, like in a minority or you weren't represented well in M M MSU? Um, so I think that there are, there are sort of two different experiences of Michigan State. Uh, you know, I, as a Black uh, Michigan State alum, my experience was totally different from, uh, I guess, my white peers. Um, and so we, I mean, from the fraternities that we joined, from the organizations that we joined, from the groups that were around, uh, I mean, outside of class, uh, you know, outside of the, like the classroom, mm -hmm. I mean, which is totally, totally different. Mm -hmm. um, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily insulate myself. Um, like I definitely, one of my favorite things to do when I was a state was to look at the billboards. So look at the billboards, uh, the bulletin boards rather, and see like all sorts of different things that were happening in the uh, on campus, right? And I would go to just random events. Right. <laughs> you know, Everything from like drum circles to, you know, journal readings and poem readings or whatever. Random events, man. Yeah. Scroll yeah. watching club, dude. Uh, um, uh, Quidditch, like those sorts. Yeah, of things. yeah. All sorts of different things, man. Because it's, it, I really think that it was just college is just you have to be able to experience different things to really enjoy it. That's great. So from MSU, where did you go? Oh, okay. So from Michigan State, I uh, was accepted into this program called Teach for America. Mm -hmm. Um, I was a terrible teacher. <laughs> I was not, I was not a good teacher, but, um, Teach for America is a program where you, um, are placed into, uh, high need classrooms, right. And you're, and you are, um, trained on how to be a teacher regardless of your background. So I didn't go to, I didn't go to school for education. Mm -hmm. uh, but regardless of your background, they place you into classrooms. Like you're on your own, like they throw you in there. And so I chose to move to be in Detroit. So they, you can pick wherever you want to be really. Hmm. Um, and they allowed me to move back to Detroit and teach. So That's I great. taught there for, uh, I taught there for not a very long time because I ended up, <laughs> I ended up um, getting fired because I was not great. And um, from there on, I was, I was at Wayne state uh, for grad school at the time or master's of education. So I was mm -hmm. kind of just a little bit all over the place. Um, very different from what I'm doing now, but you know, life is, uh, an interesting journey. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, my, my girlfriend actually was in Teach for America as well, and she she taught here in Detroit, and that's what brought her here from uh, from a long journey, but from Indiana to here. Okay, um, yeah. so that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I relate to that. Um, <laughs> do you think you know teaching in Detroit for Teach for America? Do you think the students benefited from having a teacher from their community? Yeah, I think that. So I taught fifth grade, and. Mm -hmm. It was really, it was nice to be able to kind of connect with them on that level and also connect with their parents. Mm. Their parents understood that, hey, like this is someone that is from where we're from and that's trying to do something positive if, you know, although um, he's young, like he, you know, he could be my kid, right? So yeah. that's how a lot of them uh, kind of looked at it. But 
I, I think that it, it was definitely a positive to have um, not only like a black teacher from their neighborhood, but also a black male teacher because there's a dearth of um, black male teachers just nationwide. So I really, I really appreciated the time that I spent uh, in, in those schools and in those classrooms. Um, but I mean, it was just, it, it, unfortunately teaching was not for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll yeah. get to the the point where you, you, you get fired in a second, <laughs> but uh, I'm not sure where on the timeline this fits, but you co-authored a book called schoolhouse wreck, um, which chronicled chronicles the disaster of Betsy DeVos as secretary of education. Um, and despite the funny title, the wake of her destruction and damage is going to be hard to undo. Uh, so, so from that book and, and just from, you know, your personal perspective, why is education so important and why is it important that we have leaders that support teachers? Yeah. So that book, I wrote that book and I, I, I co-authored that book with Jason Linkus of, um, think he's currently at think progress, mm-hmm. um, the editor there. And we wrote that in 2017, I believe. And so he reached out to me because Betsy DeVos, as you know, is from Michigan. And so um, he wanted my perspective as somebody that spent a little bit of time in the classroom and, and went to grad school for education. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to offer a little bit of perspective on that. Um, and to your other question about um, education and why it's so important is because, I mean, I, I think that it's really crucial for um communities of colors, uh, I mean, communities of color, of course, but I mean, for all people to understand that we need to properly educate like our kids, right? Like they're, they're the future, they are um, up, they're coming, they're coming after us, right? They're coming, they're coming after us and they, they see what we see. Um, and it's up to us to really show that we um, support our teachers, our teachers, our um, instructional coaches, people that are in this in the schools that are doing this work every day. And when I was in grad school for it, I was able to, uh, and this is why I chose Wayne State, because I was able to be in an urban environment to really see how schools, you know, how schools work. So, I mean, it's, it's critical. And, and now, and, and the, the purpose of that, writing that book was to give people an idea of who this woman was, because at the time, people still really weren't that, you know, they they really didn't know anything about Betsy DeVos. Mm-hmm. Um, you are from, I mean, if you're from Michigan and, and especially the West side of the state, you know about her empire and, and her father and-, and um, oh, Private jets and her yachts and everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's-, she's It's nuts. Uh, they have so much money, right? It's, and they- it's and unbelievable. They have, yeah, and they have influence, right? And so we just wanted to kind of lay out uh, uh, her uh, biography for people. Mm. Uh, what is one way teaching made you a better person? I would say teaching has made me way more patient. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm a patient person, but teaching, um, it really shows you that, you know, if you, it shows you how to, if you, if you can teach someone something, that means you actually have enough understanding of the topic to explain it to someone else. Right. And so that patience has really come in handy, especially in journalism, um, where you are finding yourself explaining your, you know, explaining situations and explaining topics and explaining things um, to a wide variety of people. So there's there's actually a lot of translation there. I, I'm not sure of how many teachers become journalists, but there mm-hmm. needs more probably. 
I really like the the way you're able to relate the two industries or the two intersections. Uh, so eventually you did leave teaching and, and you were fired, like you said. Uh, what did that do to your confidence and, and how did you find direction after that? Oh, man, I, I was shattered because yeah. um, so from how I said, high school was not a, a really great time for my um, my uh, education journey. <laughs> um, when I got to college, I was like, OK, I'm going to um, do the best I can. I'm going to get on the dean's list. I'm going to I'm going to change this around because, A, I'm paying for it now. Mm -hmm. I just want to, you know, prove that I actually belong here. And so uh, I got there. I was able to, you know, have a great GPA. Um, I was able to do all, all these sorts of different things. And that's why TFA sort of like, you know, uh, picked me out. And so when I ended up failing with failing at that, that was a crushing blow to sort of my confidence. Um, I was jumping around from different jobs. I was substitute teaching here and there. I was still living at home. I couldn't afford to move anywhere. Uh, so it was just really, it was really just a rough time for me. And it was nothing like how I thought graduating would be. <laughs> you know, I'm graduating, I'm in the real world now. Where's my millions of dollars, <laughs> right? So um, yeah, I mean, it, it just was, it was a really uh, rough time. Yeah, there's, there's nowhere to go to just like trade in that, that degree, that piece of paper for like that, that salary, you know? got this grad, you know, I, I was told, Hey, I was told if I went to grad school, I would have money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you kind of touched on it a little bit, but, but journalism and education are really two different, you know, directions for careers. Was it challenging to make the leap? Yeah, it was. So, uh, a friend of mine encouraged me because I, I've always been active on social media. Um, I just like to, um, I pretty much just use social media as like a, a, a journal where mm -hmm. I post sort of like my own thoughts and B, um, I post things that I find interesting and then other people just find them interesting sometimes. So that's, that was my like initial way of how I use social media from the beginning up until even now. Um, and so a friend of mine was just like, hey, you should, um, you're good with social media. You should find ways to, you should find a way to like monetize it. And this was around the time uh, that Vine was, you know, still a big thing. Vine and, um, you know, uh, the idea of influencers were, hadn't quite taken off yet, but it still was kind of coming up. And so um, I was like, well, I don't know what I can do with that. And so I started doing some research. I applied to a bunch of different internships and fellowships in journalism to see where I could even fit in because I was like, I'm, I'm decent at writing. You know, I can do that here and there. And so I applied to pretty much all of the above. I applied to BuzzFeed, I applied to Reuters, I applied to all of these different places and I got rejected by pretty much all of them because I had no journalism experience. Obviously people were like, well, where are your clips? And I'm like, clips, what are those? <laughs> so HuffPost was the, only, um, was the only one that gave me a shot and they gave me a shot because they said, we like what you were doing on social media. So let's just see if we can, let's see if there's something here. And so they gave me a shot. It's pretty cool. It's like a whole new, I'm, I'm sure that's, you know, you were, it's, it's a whole new way to audition for these jobs. You know, it's like, I, it's, it's really insane. Like, honestly, when I look back on it sometime, like they were just like, listen, we're going to give you a shot because we like your Twitter. You have like more followers than like most of our reporters. So let's mm -hmm. just, let's see where this goes. And it and was, it was a rough, 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 rough ride in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how can others who, who might be listening take that 
you know, and, and if they're not just going from education to journalism, but from, from one part of their life to another challenging part of their life, you know, what, what can they take from that, um, from the challenges that you faced when taking that 180 shift? Yeah, I think it's just really um, finding what works for you or finding what you what you uh, do well and then finding crafting a lane for yourself in that way. And so social media was that lane for me. Um, and then I, but I, but it wasn't just, I didn't just leave it there. I found a lane that made sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that is I, um, I, I did apply to a bunch of random and sort of different internships and fellowships, but the HuffPost one was a political, uh, a politics fellowship. Right. And so, um, there's always been a lack of black journalists and there, and even under that, there's a lack of black male journalists that specialize, that specialize in politics, right? And so um, I was able to find kind of that lane and then kind of fit in there. You know, it, it just, it worked for me and I was able to make it fit. And so I would just say, you know, for anyone that's looking to make a change, I would say, see what you do, see what you do well, think about what you do well, um, craft and, and sort of craft your lane on based on on what you do well. And so you're able to kind of make all these sort of intersections, everything that you, you know, what you do well, the type of job that you're looking for, the career that you're looking for, um, they, they all intersect when you really, when you really just start thinking about what you do well first. Yeah. It's like diversifying your, you know, your efforts, you know, it's like making sure you're, you're putting, you know, a lot of different pieces in different baskets. Yes. Water different gardens or whatever the, the anomaly would be. Um, so eventually your, your career, I believe, brought you to New York City and then D.C. You know, what, what happened with that? Yeah. So um, so in 2015, I was accepted for the fellowship, the politics fellowship, um, in that I packed up my car and drove uh, from Detroit to D.C. I never never mm-hmm. really thought I would live um, anywhere else like I, I was. I was totally fine with living in Michigan for, you know, most people never, you know, never really leave um, <laughs> where they're from. Right. And I, and I was kind of like that. I was like, I'm, I'm fine with staying in Michigan. Um, but I decided to just pack up my car, drove to DC, um, started the internship. I left, I left the internship because HuffPost didn't have any jobs at the time. Uh, and so um, Amanda Turkle, who was my um, uh, editor at the time, um, she wrote a letter of rec for me to continue in journalism. We had a conversation about staying in journalism. And so I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to stay in this. So this, that's when she helped me get a job at Mike, Mike.com. Mm-hmm. Kind of, which does still exist, but it's, it's not quite at the height of its powers in 2016. Um, and it's a sort of millennial based news outlet um, that was really popular in like 2016, 2017 because of the, they really had some awesome journalists that they kind of just lost due to um, pivoting the video or, or whatever. But yeah, I moved to New York, to Brooklyn, uh, and our newsroom was actually, um, where's our newsroom at? Our newsroom was on the top of like at the 84th floor of the World Trade, which is oh. like, really, yeah, you have to take like two elevators to get up there, um, which is one of, one of our, uh, one of Mike's probably poor decisions financially on, you know, media companies buying, you know, that type of rent or having that type of rent is probably not a good idea. Yeah. But I was there. And then after, um, 
I, I spent a year there and then moved back to um, HuffPost in 20, 2018, 2017 or 2018. And this, this is where I've been ever since, maybe 2017. Yep. That's great. Do you, do you think quarantine and this whole like COVID madness has opened up doors to new remote work opportunities that didn't exist before? And, and what does that look like in, in the journalism world? Yeah, I think so. What I, what I think is that it's really opened the door for a lot of um, Midwestern journalists, mm-hmm. you know, luckily, like a lot of, a lot of Midwestern journalists um, who don't want to move to LA or DC or New York. Now uh, there's, there's sort of like a renewed focus on the, and this, this is not just because of COVID, like this was something that was happening also due to, um, I, I, I guess I would say the rise of uh, the president. Yeah, the um, politics too. I yeah, mean, the politics yeah, of it, right? Yeah. People are are curious about what um, quote unquote Middle America has to has to say, right? And so, um, but in general, I would say Midwestern journalists have all sorts of opportunities now because now you have to take a look at people because of this remote lifestyle that we're all doing. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, I think one of my coworkers actually just moved. She moved from DC um, back to Chicago, right? And you know, and we have some other journalists that are in different places. Um, I think we have one in rural Georgia. So, th- I mean, there, there, there's these great opportunities for journalists to now freelance, um, create uh, newsletters, mm-hmm. uh, podcasts, podcasts, podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know, so this. I mean, I think the I think the pandemic has sort of exacerbated the need for all of these sorts of different types of um, media forms. Yeah, content is king right now for sure. Um, so work from home definitely presents a lot of struggles with, you know, staying motivated and, you know, not procrastinating. Um, what, what do you do in moments when the creative juices just aren't showing up? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I, thankfully I got a desk. I was, I was late to get a desk. Uh, I should have, I should have had a desk a long time ago, like before pre pandemic, but I got one during the pandemic. And so now, because I used to just sit on my couch and Mm -hmm. unfortunately I will fall asleep. (laughs) <laughs> but um, I mean, whenever, whenever the, you know, the juices aren't flowing, I, you know, would just have to close the laptop for sure. Close the laptop, maybe take a walk, um, ride my bike. So I, I, what really helps is I, I ride bikes. I ride the, um, the electric bikes, like there are mm-hmm. electric bikes here in DC that are everywhere. Um, I'm not sure if they're in Detroit yet, but they, you know, the scooters are there. Yeah. Right? Yep. I ride the scooters. We have um, the bikes too, like the nice. power assisted bikes. Nice. Those are great. Like I, mm-hmm. I love those, you know? And so I, I try to ride around. I was hiking a lot in the beginning of the pandemic, yeah. uh, quite a bit of hiking here and there. So I try to just to get outside. Yeah. It feels it, like kind of a prison sometimes. Yeah. You got to get the sunshine and just connect with nature and earth a little bit. Yeah. So we touched a little bit on race and journalism, um, but you know, journalism is an extremely vanilla industry. Do you feel like the platforms and outlets that you've worked with are making any progress towards having better representation in their newsrooms? Yeah. So um, unfortunately, I don't think that HuffPost has been um, real. So so I I will say this. Our union has done a great job. Um, The HuffPost union has done a great job of like trying to um, diversify the newsroom. Um, And unfortunately, HuffPost, like the, the actual um, company has been um, kind of hamstrung by our um, corporate our, owners. 
yeah, our, our corporate owner is Verizon Media, but we don't we're not owned by Verizon Media uh, any well soon anymore. We we were just acquired by BuzzFeed. Mm. So the hope is that BuzzFeed will um, have a uh, you know will the ideas that that we have will um, align a little bit more with with BuzzFeed than Verizon Media, who or Verizon rather, who is not really sympathetic to. HuffPost wants or concerns. So as a massive corporation, um, BuzzFeed, mm. obviously, you know, their news outlet and their, their ideals sort of align with ours. So um, we have not really been able to do a lot of hiring. Uh, and so that's, that's just from the HuffPost perspective. But I think that in general, there, there was a huge call. If you remember um, like the summer, obviously Juneteenth and then the George Floyd protests and all these, all these sorts of different things, there was a huge call for like, we need to hire black journalists and you know do this, but it's not just about hiring black journalists. You have to make sure you retain them, promote them um, and, and make sure that they feel like they are wanted actually at your organization. Um, and that's, that that link hasn't been made yet. You know, like it's 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 great to hire reporters, but we also we also do other things. Like we're also editors. We can also manage. We can also manage a newsroom. We can do all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. I, I I relate. My day job is in the music industry, and I think you know we took similar initiatives during the same timeline to you know the 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 um, different you know social media campaigns and whatnot. And I think a lot of it is optical, you know, um, yeah. and it comes back to, you know, we're, we're six, seven, eight months, you know, away from where we were and what has actually changed. And it's hard to really, you know, calculate that. So um, and I can understand that frustration uh, in, a, in a way. Um, how can others who may be marginalized in, in their own industry um, take notes, you know, from other black journalists and what you guys are doing to help change the narrative in their own workforce. Um, yeah, I think, so I think the major, I think the first step is just admitting that there's like, you know, that there is an issue. Um, sometimes it's hard for uh, companies to even want to admit that there is an issue, right? Like they're thinking like, okay, we're, we are, you know, we have like, you know, a couple of marginalized people here, you know, mm-hmm. one a woman here in, in, um, in the leadership role. So we're okay. Um, so, or we, we have a, we have an equality committee or something, you know, yeah, like, you know we yeah. have a diversity committee or something. Yeah. So we're working toward it, but I think what really helps is when you're actually able to see, um, hard like stats about it. And that, that was one of the hard, that was one of the hardest things that, um, we were, we just have not been able to get from Verizon, um, hard stats on, you know, uh, diversity statistics and numbers, like who is actually being hired? Like our, like how many like people are being hired? Um, what do like, what does our company even look like? You know? And so it's, it's just hard to, um, get those sorts of, get that sort of information. And I think that the first step is just admitting like, Hey, okay, listen, we have a problem. What can we actually do to, um, rectify it? What steps are we taking and make sure, and not only that, making sure that, um, you pull, um, people from uh, people of color into these um, these rooms to actually have the conversations. Yeah, and I think a lot of it starts, you know, like you said, you had your fellowship and internships and stuff. You know, and I remember a few months ago, a certain Detroit company was launching their you know internship class of 2020, and uh, you know there's a picture. It's, it's one of the biggest employers of the city, and there's like 20 people in this class, and they're all white people, not a single person of color, and and it was just shocking almost. You know, it's like they, they can't be that that 
unkind you know like it just it just seems like a very um naive move to make um and, and and so you know you have to think it starts even with outreach like making sure that you know people in these marginalized communities even know about these programs to to apply to because i'm sure that the application process is probably not you know set up in their favor yeah that's that's so important making sure that you know you're going to colleges right like colleges hbcus um you know places where um people of color actually are right like are you are you going into these you know areas for people to even know um <laughs> like that that this is open like who, who knows that this this position is open right right yeah because i think the response from the company was like well this is you know reflective of the applications and, and it's like well that's not acceptable because you know you're in you're in one of the most you know black cities in america and and you can't come up with you know a, a better i don't know it's very frustrating More representative pool mm-hmm. um so you know um uh, speaking from from this intersection what what would you like to see done differently from the white cis counterparts in your industry um i i really appreciate uh the members of the union uh that um, of, of, Huff, of HuffPost Union because they're really like taking kind of a lead on this. Um, honestly, some days I'm just like tired. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. and honestly, we're all like, I understand that we're all tired. Um, but the one thing is that it's harder for um, Black people and other people of color to um, do, you know, do their job and also have to rally, um, rally around uh efforts of diversity in the newsroom and all it's, it's just it's a lot mm-hmm. all when we all as as you know as a community like work kind of work together um as co-workers to ring the alarm on this that spreads it out that makes it a lot easier for everyone to um bring attention to it you know and so i really appreciate my co-workers uh who have been like just sounding the alarm they're like listen we know that HuffPost has been a traditionally white space we want to do something to change this and that is, I mean, that's, that is really, you know, what you, what you would ask for from um, your coworkers and um, making sure that management sees it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is like really a top-down type of issue, you know, and, and I think that a lot of it does, you know, a lot of movement does happen underneath upper management in some of these companies, but it's when it gets to like the C positions where it really gets lost. And yeah. I think that that's uh probably very damaging for any real movement here so yeah i'd love to see more you know in 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 every industry yeah um the the power of imagery and perception is is so strong how can the media better portray the black community as to not perpetuate the same rhetoric that reinforces perceptions you know that that have damaged the black communities for so long you know and i'm talking about like like the the way headlines are written um, or even even just uh, commercials and marketing and, and, and that type of stuff. Yeah. So the the easiest so the easiest answer would be like to what like hire <laughs> more black people, right? Like that that would be the easy thing because when you when you think about, um, I mean, when you think about Detroit, and let's just talk about like the top, you know, like the top three um, news digital news outlets in in Detroit, they are all disproportionately white. Right. Mm-hmm. So there, when there's no diversity, you, you sort of run into sort of like the same issues that you've always run into. Um, and that's, and that's, 
you know, hiring is like, that's kind of like a, you know, you were like, okay, this is kind of an easy thing, but it's not just, it's not just hiring. Um, because then when you, when you hire, when news companies hire a black person, then they become like the race whisperer almost, you know, like in this person has now has another job on top of their regular job, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's not just hiring, but it's also making sure that people, um, in the newsroom, uh, attend these diverse, you know, attend their diversity trainings, attend like headline workshops, attend um, uh, sessions, you know, that can actually help people understand, okay, here's why this is a problem. Um, Kat Stafford, who is a great, who's just a a great journalist. She's with the Associated Press. Um, She's with the Associated Press now, but she's also from Detroit. Mm -hmm. Uh, She worked at the the Free Press. Uh, She always talks about this, topic of equitable sourcing, right? And so um, equitable sourcing and how she describes it is, we're making sure that we are um, reaching out to all sorts of sources, not just not just the authorities, not just police, not just um, experts, right? Experts, whatever, when we, when we talk about experts, we talk about that from a white lens. So like, um, not just uh, a University of Michigan professor of, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. right? but sources as far as like people in the neighborhoods People, community members, community members, exactly. Activists, that's equitable sourcing. And so I think that that is another big thing that people could, um, that newsrooms could think about. That's really great. So how, how do you stay balanced in, in the crazy world that we're living in? Uh, do, you, do you have a routine that allows you to disconnect from work and in, in the media? Yeah. So uh, I, I watch a lot of YouTube, like <laughs> I watch a lot yeah. of videos, man. I watch like gaming videos. I watch, um, I watch and listen to a lot of different podcasts on um, on YouTube, and uh, YouTube is honestly my my getaway <laughs> sometimes. I'm just I, I'll listen to it while cleaning. Um, I try to keep my my apartment clean because I feel like um, your apartment is sort of like a microcosm of your life. Like if if my room if my space is not clean, then it's just I, I feel like my life is a mess, right? And so I try to keep my space my apartment clean. Um, and I also, I, I, like I said before, I try to go like get on the scooter, get on the bike and just ride around DC, man. I, I really, I really love doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, e-scooters uh, or the e-bikes, the e-bikes are fun. Yeah. It's good to feel the, the wind, you know, like against your face on the right. bike. It's, it's like so fun just to just cruise the city. Exactly. Especially the e-bikes, man. They're so fun. Yeah. Um, I ask all my guests this, but do you meditate? I say, uh, no, no. Although I, I think I should start, man. I, I, I um, have a friend that meditates every morning. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely suggest starting, you know, wherever you start, there's, there's no wrong place. So, you know, there's a million apps out there and most, most like phones even come, come preloaded with an app now. So you meditate? what's that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm a big proponent of meditation. I talk about it a lot on the podcast. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you know, maybe check out a YouTube video on meditation. Yeah, man. I, I think I got, to, I think I have to, man. I, I mean, I should have started, I should have started meditating January 20th, 2016. Like that's when I should. Have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's no better time than now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what advice do you have for listeners who just feel the weight of everything around them going on? You know, the, the world's pretty crazy right now, so it's, it's hard to escape. I would just say that, um, you know, we need you, <laughs> you know, like, like we need, um, we need everyone as far as, um, 
people, I mean, we, we, we all have a purpose and we're all important. Um, and we're all, uh, we're, we all live this life and, you know, we're all just trying to, we're really just all trying to make it, you know, and I, I would hope that no one, I just hope that no one feels alone. Right. You know, I, mm-hmm. I would hope that no one feels alone. Um, you are, you have a purpose, you're necessary, you're important. Um, and I mean, there's so, there is so much going on. Um, but definitely find, you know, that person or, or whoever you may speak with or talk with every day or, or find someone to speak with that you can, you can talk to and, and kind of help unload this and, and think about therapy as well. Like therapy is, is, I think therapy is losing a lot of that stigma that it, that is, that it's had, you know, it's over, over the years, it's, it's sort of like become more socially acceptable to talk about, um, therapy and, and getting a therapist. Um, those are, those are things, unfortunately, there are some places where therapists can be kind of a financial burden to people, but I think that, I think that there are, um, options for that. So yeah. yeah. It that. seems like, you know, along with, you know, the work from home stuff and all that, it seems like the world is getting a lot more connected and it's easier to access things like that, you know, like therapy on demand online. Um, and I think the barriers for, you know, getting that help is, is getting lower and lower. So, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I think destigmatizing things like, you know, asking for help and, and, and seeing a therapist is really important. And I'm, I'm happy to see it, you know, take, taking progress. Um, how, how do you, you, you're a huge tweeter. Um, <laughs> how, how do you feel social media is affecting our lives in both a negative and positive way? Do you, do you think social media can ever be a safe space? Um, I don't think social media can ever be a safe space, which is why I'm very careful. I'm very, I, I tell the line, but I try not to go, try not to cross it. Um, and I think that that just comes with time. Uh, I've been on it for a minute. I've been on it for a, a while and I, I kind of know when that, I, I know where the line is uh, as far as like what I, what I post. I don't think that it's, it's a safe space, you know, like even if you have a private account or anything like that, it, you should always assume that what you are posting, somebody is going to, you know, somebody's going to see it. Mm -hmm. And so, no, I don't think it's a safe space. I think that social media is good in the sense that it's democratized um, kind of the news and and how we see things. Um, But it's also bad in the sense that it's democratized (laughs) because now, you know, we have anti-vaxxers sharing all sorts of stuff and, um, you know, we have uh, white supremacists and and just all sorts of nonsense online. So it's it's like it's 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 great, but it's also it's also rough. And it's, but all in all, that comes with you just have to kind of be cautious of what you're what you're reading and what you're consuming. Yeah, yeah, it is crazy. It's like the wild west out there. I mean, it's if you're an impressionable person, it's it's a dangerous place to be. So. Um, is there a specific time in history that you can either look back on from experience or from just from learning that, that you felt was the most hopeful for the United States in terms of, uh, equality and human rights? Um, so I, I do think that, um, there was that sense of hope, uh, that lifted, uh, uh Obama to the presidency, right? Like I, that was sort of his, that was his, um, his main draw, right? Like that's, that's sort of what he um, campaigned on, um, that this is a new day. I mean, there were people, 
I mean, he had he had people voting that never in their life would have thought about voting. You know, yeah. Uh, there was a there was a sense of hope, uh, sort of that he brought uh, to people. You know, at that at that time. Now, you know, did he achieve that? Eh. <laughs> you know, eh, probably no, no. But uh, I would say that that. Uh, I remember it vividly, right? I remember, you know, that that campaign and and how in him actually being elected, the sense of hope and joy that people had uh, at the time uh, was, I mean, it was just unfathomable at the time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I remember um, the election party uh, in, in 2008 that my family had, it was like extended family and whatnot. And they had an, a cutout of Obama and we could all t- take pictures with him and cheers with the champagne glass and whatever. And, um, a- I, I don't think my family would ever purchase a cutout of any other presidential <laughs> candidate or president elect. So uh, yeah, testament like- to, to what he, what he brought his energy. Um, and I, and I look forward to, you know, a time where we can have that, beacon again um because i do believe that 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 time is coming and you know i think just like we talked about representation in in media and and in journalism i think representation in politics and in leadership roles like that is very important so i think you know i i I think barack obama probably knocked down a lot of those um you know when when kids are in school and they look at the president they can see someone like them and, and see that that's something that they can achieve that's really important. Yeah, I agree. Um, who who has inspired you in your life? Um, I definitely. So I mean, I know it's cliche, but my parents definitely have have um, inspired me just because, you know, I I really it, raising three uh, three boys in Detroit is three black boys in Detroit, and for all of them to go go to college and you know become successful in their own rights. Um, is like a that I mean that's that's amazing. I told my parents like y'all should write a book or something, you know, because mm-hmm. you know it's it's sort of a it's it's kind of a amazing um, story for them um, to help us all the way through and help us through um, you know Detroit public schools and, and college and making sure that we were always involved in all sorts of different things to really experience right. So like I was in DAPSEP like this. Um, Detroit engineering program. I had no, I, <laughs> I had no interest in engineering whatsoever, but they were just like, look, you're not doing anything on Saturdays, but watching cartoons, you're going to get up and do this. <laughs> right. So yeah, they exposed you to new things. Exposing to a lot of different stuff and exposed um, my other two brothers to all these sorts of different things. So, I mean, you know, I, as I get older, you know, you can really see uh, the sacrifices and the things that they've done for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so they definitely exp- inspire me. Um, and in, I would say in media, um, who inspires me, um, man, there, there are so many, there are so many great choices, but I will say, I will say my friend, uh, John Ketchum, John, mm-hmm. Ketchum, he is a, um, so he, he's kind of, he's, he's a journalist, but he, he's been kind of all over, like, like a little all over the place. Uh, he was at, he was at CNN uh, when I was just getting started and I would just go to him all the time and ask him questions. Cause he was the closest, he was the closest person in media that I knew at the time. I didn't know anybody else that worked in media at all. 
And so I would ask him all sorts of questions about just journalism as a whole. And he's been able to do different, he's been able to start his own journalism things. He's been managing editors of, of different of outlets and things like that. So um, yeah, he's, and he's always pushing, you know, he's always pushing forward to see what is, what else is new out there. So great that you're able to have that role model you know and some someone you know kind of following the footsteps of yeah um how can journalism and media as a whole bring positive change to the world um oh that's a great question so i what i'd like to do um so i'm an editor i don't write often Uh, i don't uh write super often but when i but the great thing about being an editor is that when you do write, I can sort of like pick and choose what I want to write. So um, the stories that I find interesting are stories about, about black people, you know, um, about black people and about the things that um, are underreported. Right. And so I, I've been able to, to share all sorts of stories that have, I think have brought joy to people. Um, one, one example is I, I wrote a story about a um, black owned ice cream shop uh, near Howard university in DC. Um, and this, it wasn't, so it wasn't just a, it wasn't just the fact that it was a black owned ice cream shop, uh, down the street, but it was also the fact that, um, the owner, um, she envisioned the space as not just an ice cream shop, but also a place where, um, she hires students, like she hires students, um, and they, in who have future aspirations of becoming chefs and becoming like business owners themselves. And so they're able to, to, uh, experience what you know owning a, a ice cream shop is like and so those sorts of stories aren't always being told um in in sort of like the mainstream media and i really i really enjoy being able to tell those sorts of stories and so when we as when media as a whole finds the um finds interest in those sorts of stories i think we'll be better off for it yeah so it's elevating some of those stories and giving them the space to actually be seen exactly and, p- and people want to read it. like people you know people want to read those sorts of stories we don't always want to see um and and I've, obviously there's space for um you know i don't want to say negative stories but there's 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 space for stories that are you know are not always um you know i guess positive right but mm-hmm. uh, there but we should also uplift people's stories as well is it like uh you know the sense like desensitizing in media, you know, kind of type of stuff, like trying, trying to not always fill the, the media with, with stories that are, you know, bad and just kind of putting, putting more, you know, triumphant stories and stories of success out there. Cause they, they probably, they, they do greatly outnumber the bad stories. They just don't get the attention. They don't, they don't always get the attention. And, you know, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to belittle the importance of like, you know, that of, of sharing those stories because those obviously those stories are important uh but we just always need to we also need to realize that there are positive stories out there there are triumphant stories out there um that we should be telling too you know that should be that should be also getting sort of like the same amount of attention as well definitely um what's one thing you'd like listeners to know that we haven't talked about I think that I would like listeners to know that everyone has a story, you know, and you know that I think that's that sounds, you know, that sounds obvious, right? But um, everyone does have a story, um, and people are still writing their stories, you know, and so 
don't don't give up you know if you feel like you're in a rut or if you feel like you are um stuck like i mean like myself when i was back in 2014 i felt like i was stuck you know i felt like i'm just here i feel like a failure i am living at home uh and making like 20 dollars an hour or, you know uh, for four hour days of substitute teaching um i am completely broke and i have no idea where i'm going now um but you you know you just you aren't stuck you know you just have to keep pushing and keep living you know so you can see where you're going gotta wake up every day and see what the day holds exactly you know you never like you just you never know right and so i think that that's one thing about life that's just um so interesting like you get to see every day you get to create your own your your new story you get to, you get to create a new story you get to create your own path every day right so every day doesn't have to be the same so that's i think that that's what i have been able to learn since you know getting into journalism really great um lastly where where can listeners connect with you oh well um i am i my i am my name is my name on on everything and i'm, I'm not the i'm not the phil lewis from um sweet life of zach and cody <laughs> i'm uh yeah no just phil phil lewis uh, or philip lewis on so i'm philip lewis on facebook uh phil underscore lewis underscore on twitter and phil dot lewis on instagram um and you know if anybody has any story ideas or anything like that my email is just my name just philip philip with one l dot lewis at huffpost.com great and uh i encourage our listeners to connect with you and i appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your evening to sit down with me oh, i really appreciate it thank you so much yeah, it was a great conversation talk to you soon awesome thank you